Thanks for checking out the Oasis Church podcast from Camden, Arkansas. Each week we share the message from our Sunday worship service. Join us anytime. More information at camdenoasischurch.com. It is good to be with you this morning. We are going to be back in our Mark series, Mark chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, um, we will be in Mark 14, starting in verse 43. Today we're going to look at kind of a, just a short little part of the narrative as we, as we kind of jump back into the series. We were, we were in, a, in a really a built-up part of what's going on as we are uh, hours away from the cross. And... And I had, had originally looked to go further than this, but I kind of wanted to stop and, and look here because I think this is a good place to kind of introduce us back into the story as we look at this little short narrative of the arrest, the betrayal of Jesus as he begins um, really all the proceedings and things that would lead to the next few hours of him going to the cross. And we see some development of characters. We see, um, we see really Jesus shine through in this as, as, as he fulfills the purpose of God as he is um, necessary in all that he does and accomplishes here. And so we'll see that in this passage today. Is anybody book readers? Are you, are you book readers? Do you like to read fiction and things? My wife reads all the time. I'm a Netflix series watcher. I don't know if anybody else can relate to that. Like, um, that's, you know, I, I enjoy those. And she tells me all the time, there's nothing like reading a good book and then developing the characters and there's so much more detail in your imagination just to think and she's like a lot of times when you um you've heard the phrase that the the movie's not near as good as the book which I think that's crazy um because <laughs> but she'll tell you that there's so much more development there's so much more detail that like they're missing all these things and it just it falls short and I'm like yeah but they do it for you like, you can just sit and watch it. Like, you don't have to think about it. Like, they just put it there, and you can watch it. And that's what a lot of us enjoy doing. Um, and, and I think it's great. Reading is, is, is good, but it's this development of character. And that's kind of what we see here in this passage as we, as we see a kind of an obscure passage and moment um, where, where Mark actually doesn't go in as detailed as, as some of the other Gospels. But what he's doing is giving some more layers to what Christ is going through as we've come out of the garden and we've seen that, that there was some great stress on Christ as we saw his humanity and, and, and the, the sweating drops of blood and the, the, just um, the anguish of looking into the cup of God's wrath and the sin of man that he was about to take on. Um, but here we see him um, coming from that moment to a very heroic stance of, of ready to face, ready to face what was coming as not backing down but calmly coming into this moment. Alistair Begg, a, a great pastor, says this of this passage. We see that Mark's goal in writing the gospel is to help us quickly understand the necessity of the cross and our great need of a Savior. And he gives four things here that we see in this passage that, that he says will, will help us to understand that. It shows that Christ is necessary. He's necessary. He's the only one who can die in the place of sinners. It, it, Mark's gospel teaches us that it's voluntary, that Christ, in, in so much that he is willing to go to the cross, that, that he's willing to do what the Father has called him to do, is propitiatory, as far as he bears the Father's wrath and expresses the Father's love. And, and here we see at the cross, at, at the beginning of this, that, that 
the, at the cross, justice and God's love meet, that, that God's wrath towards sin and God's grace and mercy and love is displayed on the cross. In 1 John 4.10, it says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the propitiation for our sins, as the one who would come in and pay our debt. You also see this um, substitutionary, and that he dies in our place. When we look at the cross, we, we need to see that this is Jesus taking our place. And I think when we look at this story today, we see this, that this is Jesus stepping in where we fall short. And he's willing, he's substitutionary, he's all of these things in this place in, in Mark chapter 14. And Christ is to be exalted. He is to be desired. He is to be glorified. He is to be worshipped because of these things. We should run to him. And what we'll see here is because of some of the confusion and the fear and the turmoil that people are running away from him. But what we should do is, is be stirred for our affections for God because of who he is and what he is doing and it should cause us to run to him. And so we'll look at uh, four characters that are developed in the story here. And we'll start in verse 43 and read this together. It says, And immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve with him, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now that the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching you. You did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And the young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And I know that's a weird way to end this, but um, I, I think there's some important things as we see in this narrative, the people that are developed here. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We pray that as we study it today, um, Lord, that it would remind us of what a great Savior we have. Lord, that we would be mindful that, um, Lord, it is, it is our sin and our brokenness that, that has caused what we're seeing happening here. And God, but you are such a, a willing sacrifice and a beautiful Savior. And so today, Father, I pray that we would see you as that. Um, Lord, let your word speak to us and let your spirit work in our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing we'll see here is develop as, as the betraying disciple. It's this disciple who, who comes against Jesus. Um, he's immediately uh, named here. It says, and immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying. So he's listed in this first few verses as the betrayer, as Judas, one of the disciples. There's some important things that it's talking about as we see this character develop here. It is Judas. Judas is a, is a name that, that we all understand and know, but at this time, the disciples were unsure of who would betray Jesus. It says that he was one 
of the 12. It's important for us to recognize and remember who Judas was, that he was one that walked with Jesus, that talked with Jesus, that ministered alongside of Jesus, that was there through all of these things. But he was also the one whose heart was never fully given to God, who had never truly followed him for the right reasons. There was always a disconnect, and there was always a, a, a hypocrisy and a heart full of deceit that would cause a man to be able to walk with Jesus for such a long time but never fully give his life to him and the devotion to him. And so he becomes the one who betrays him. We know that the disciples had recently said earlier in the passage, is it I? Who would be the one that would betray? Jesus would tell them this, verse 17 of, of chapter 14. And when the evening came with the 12, as they were reclining at the table, eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me, sorry. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the 12, one who is dipping bread in the dish with me. And this was someone that was a part of Jesus's life. I want us to, to recognize that, that Judas was not this person who was on the outside, that Christ had brought him in, that he was one of the 12, Christ's closest people that was breaking bread with him, the dipping. That was an important social thing. If you were eating with someone, breaking bread with them, that means that there was a, a, a love for them and a respect for them and a care for them, that they were important in your life. Disciples were so astonished by this person that they didn't know if it was them or someone else in this room because they could not believe that one of the 12 would be the person that's going to come against Jesus. It can't be one of us. And so it caused them to ask that question, is it I? Could it be me? Could I be the one? Because it's so unrecognizable that a disciple would be one of the ones or be the one who would betray him. But what it shows us here <coughs> is a deep display of the brokenness of the human heart. Of, the human, of humanity, the brokenness, the sinfulness of the nature that we're born with. What it does in Judas's life is displays just how messed up we really can be. And that's hard. That's hard to hear. That's hard to think about. That sometimes that's, man, we don't want to realize just how broken we are. We want to, we want to just push those thoughts out and, and, and not think too hard on this. But as we see the brokenness of ourselves, as we see that someone could walk with Jesus and could hear Jesus talk and hear him talk about the kingdom but never surrender to it, that that's a reality for, for this day and age just as well as it was for them and that he could live fully with a heart that is full of deceit and wickedness. Listen to the hypocrisy that he has here. He says, now the betrayer had given him a sign, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him under guard. And when they came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. <coughs> Here we see that in his betrayal, that he, he does two things. He, he calls him Rabbi and he kisses him. And, <coughs> excuse me, both of those things are held for high esteem. For, for a place of honor in someone's life. If you were to call someone rabbi, teacher, it means that they are someone that you respect. 
There's someone that you've devoted your time. I mean, people would learn and under, under rabbis and teachers that they would dedicate their lives to be spent learning the teachings of what these rabbis would pass down, and then they would eventually become the teachers and pass down information to those. And so this was a person that you loved and respected. And then culturally, in this culture, a, a kiss on the cheek was a, a welcome thing, is something that you did to show love. I remember the first time I went out of the country and um, in my 20s and and because in this culture, you don't walk up and give somebody a kiss on the cheek when you hug them and welcome them. And in other places, um, everybody does that. And so I can remember the first time that, that I hugged someone and they gave me a kiss on the cheek. And I definitely remember the first time it was, it was one of the men of the, of the group of the church that did that. And, man, it was, it was shocking to the system. Like, it, it scared me. Like, I, I, that's not our cultural norm. But for here, man, this was what you did to show your love and respect for someone. It showed that you were, you were equal with them, you were cared for them, or they were in a place of honor and respect. And, and it becomes more normal. And when you, you're in those places, it does become normal. And you see that it really is a sweet thing. It really is a, a precious thing that, that, they, that they would do that. But here, in Judas, I mean, he is saying that the sign I'm going to give you to show you who this person is, is, is something that is meant to show love and respect. It just shows you how deceitful his heart truly was. It shows you how the brokenness could really, truly overcome. We know that that Judas was, was someone who, um, from, from earlier uh, passages and other passages it talks about Judas, like he was upset when, when, um, Mary, or when yeah, Mary broke the, the uh, perfume and poured it over Jesus' feet and, and cleaned his feet because he was, he's like, we could sell that and we could give that to the poor. And then Jesus says, yeah, but the, the only reason you want to do that is because you want to steal the money that comes from that. We know that like J- Judas was a guy who, who was with Jesus, but he was never fully with Jesus. Like, he was, he was the guy checking out the finances so that he could skim off the top what he could do for his own gain, his own selfishness. That he was the one who, who was there with him, but never truly with him, and his heart was continually full of deceit. One pastor says that the corruption and moral blindness of Judas it is possible to be attached to Jesus and his church in superficial ways, and when Christ does not live up to our expectations, our expectations, we turn on him. In other words, when we get all we can out of Jesus, when we think this is, this is what I was looking for in this relationship and you've given me this and that's all I need, and when it starts to cost us something or when it starts to cause us to think about our morals or, or question some things, then we're quick to turn away and push away from that relationship because self-sacrifice is difficult. But what does Mark said? What do the other gospels tell us? That to follow Christ is to repent. It's to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. It's, it's to live lives dedicated to him. It's to love him with our whole selves. It is to, to be 100% after him, and that's not who Judas was. He probably enjoyed the prestige of being one of the 12. He probably enjoyed walking around and seeing things happen and being around as crowds would come and they would honor and they they would, they would be excited, and they would go in these places, and people would gather around, and he got to be one of the ones who got to enjoy the glory of that. But without it, it was just his selfishness that we see in the story. So that's the betrayer. That's Judas. 
He would come after Jesus. He would, he would gather a group together. He would actually go to religious leaders, and he would go to the political leaders, and he would get them both on board, and they would both send their group, and they were ready, they were armed, and they were coming after Jesus to seize him in the night. The next group I think we see here is, are, the, is, are the disciples. And what we see develop here with the disciples, because it's just short, there's two things that, that's just mentioned real quick. But what we see is, is the weakness of their faith. What we see is like there's still some confusion there. If, if you remember back, even to Mark chapter 9, I think it is, that Jesus tells them for the first time about what's going to happen about his death. Listen to what it says. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. This is verse 30. He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Exactly what's happening right now. They're going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he, when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Then verse 32 says, but they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask. So when Jesus first started telling them what's going to happen, they didn't fully grasp it. He tells them two more times exactly what's going to happen. And I don't think they began to fully grasp. In fact, Peter stands up one time and says, no, Lord, I will, I will die with you. I'm not going to let this happen. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, because Peter's standing in the way of the will of God. That's not what's supposed to be happening. And here we're going to see that Peter does the same thing again. And what we see is that the disciples' faith, although we're going to see it come to full term later on in Scripture, right now there's still a lot of questions, Mark. They're still living the moment. And it's a difficult, there's confusion, there's hardship, and, and there's things that, that, are, that are being stirred in them right now that is causing them to have two reactions. The first one is that they, they take up arms against the ones who are coming after Jesus, and the next one is that they just flee. They leave. So it says, and they laid hands on him, and they seized him, verse 47, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from, from other passages, I think it's John chapter 18 that teaches us that the person who drew his sword was Peter. And, and he cut off the high priest's servant's ear in, in trying to stop what was happening to be stopped. And Jesus calmly puts the ear back on and he rebukes Peter for coming against him because this was the time that God had appointed and so what Peter was doing is the same thing that he did back the other time. We said, no, I'll die for you. I'll stand up. And he said, no, Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you're getting in the way of the will of God. Peter, that same person, I mean, I could ask you who you thought it was. If you didn't know, we could have guessed it was Peter because this is just kind of the way Peter was. I'm going to react first before I think through what's going on. And that's what he does. He reacts. And I, I can't blame him. I, I can't see myself in any other way but the way he reacted. If someone is coming to harm someone I love, I think we all have that desire in us to, to be protectors, to say, no, we don't want this to happen. Like, this is, we're going to do everything we can to stop this. And this is what Peter was doing. I would guess that some of you in this room are carrying a pistol right now because of that same attitude and mentality that we, we want to protect ourselves and we want to protect the ones we love. And that's our right to do that. And, and so, um, so we, we can understand this. But what his failure to understand 
was that there was a greater purpose going on and that this was the time for him to come. In fact, when they were asleep in the garden in verse 41, listen to what Jesus says to them. He said, came to them a third time saying to them, are you still asleep taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going. See my betrayers at hand. Jesus woke them up, and maybe they were just too tired to hear it. Maybe they were just too tired to understand in the moment. Uh, they had to get the sleep out of their eyes because it was in the middle of the night. But they missed it even right there before this moment happened. And Peter stands up, and he comes against them. And, and out of the fear and the turmoil that's going on, I couldn't imagine. Could you imagine? I, I've read some things that said there could have been a thousand people at this. There were a lot of people. We don't know how many for sure, but they seemed to think there was an overkill amount of people because they didn't know what Jesus might do and how he might react. I think they had a, a pretty good understanding that he had some power, that he could do some things. In fact, in Matthew, it tells us that um, he, he rebukes Peter. He says, hey, don't you know, if this was not the will of God, like I could call up 12, uh, 12,000 legions or 12 legions, which is thousands of, of um, angels to come and fight this battle for me. He's like, if this was not the purpose I wanted, don't you think I could petition the Father and that he would come and he would rescue me with thousands of angels, that they would be here to fight the battle? And of course they would. But that was not the will of the Father in the moment. Let's keep reading to, to see what the disciples do. It says, um, and Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with a sword and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let scriptures be fulfilled. In verse, um, verse 50, it says this, and they left him and fled. That's talking about the disciples. Jesus stopped what was happening. He stopped Peter. He calmed the moment down. Read it in John 18. Read it in Matthew 27. Read it in Luke, uh, and, and they'll give you some more details. But here, Mark is wanting us to see the disciples. And what the disciples did is simply, one, they fought when they shouldn't have fought, and two, they fled. And this is, I think, a reaction of, of every person here that we're very capable of doing. Because when life is, there's turmoil, when there's fear, when we don't understand fully what's going on, I think we have that flight and, and fight mentality. Like we're either going to stay and we're going to fight it and we're going to try to get it back in our control where we can, we can have some control and say on what's going on or we just flee from it. We run from it. And that's what the disciples are displaying here. And it's due to a lack of faith. It's due to a lack of understanding. It's due to they don't fully understand what Jesus Christ is about to do. They will when they see it in person. They will when the Holy Spirit of God in Acts 1 ascends upon them and gives them full revelation of these things and empowers them to go and give their lives to preaching the gospel. They never turn back again. But in this moment, they turn back. And it's because of that lack of faith. It's because of some confusion. It's because of not fully understanding the purposes of God. And I think we can easily relate to that. I think we need to check our hearts and, and, and look at our lives and say, how often have I just pushed away 
from Christ? How often have I pushed away from church? How often have I pushed away from, from even spending time reading the Word of God and praying because the situation was overcoming to me and there was too much fear, there was too much turmoil, there was too much going on that I couldn't get it back under my control. And instead of running to God, instead of submitting and humbly obeying and, and, and just trusting Him, we flee, we push Him away, we run from Him. That was the disciples here in this moment. What we see the most is, is Christ. The accused Christ in this moment displays four things. And what we see about Christ in this is, is number one, that he submits himself to the Father's will. He is submitted. He is, he is fully ready. He says that... Um, that he was come um, to, he said, shall I not drink the cup of the Father's will that is given to me? The, the cup of wrath of the Father that is given to me. He, he says of this, he says that this is his time. He says, rise, let's go be going. The betrayer is at hand. Jesus is, is ready. Does he just pray that this would pass for him? Yes, but the Father says that this is the way and he submits to that. He is willing and ready to take on the wrath of God. Um, he is not a helpless man. He is a willing participant. We see that he has completely and fully submitted himself to this. Verse 41 says, And he came the third time and said to him, Are you still sleeping? Take the rest. The hour has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed. Rise. Let us go. Let us go. Let us face this because it is time. This is a man whose life has been changed, or his this is someone who is ready to engage in what's ahead of him. He's a willing participant. He submitted to the, to the Father's will, and he's a willing participant of it. He lays his life down. John 10, 17 and 18 says, For the reason the Father loves me is that I lay my life down, my life in order to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, the authority to take it up, this is the charge I have received from the Father. This is what Jesus Christ has come to do, to give his life as ransom for many, to be a servant, not to be served, to, to accomplish the will of God. He's a willing participant. I think we see here in this passage that he's without blame. When Jesus says, why have you come against me like a robber? With swords and clubs to capture me day after day, I wish um, I was with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me, but let, the, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. He says this. He says, why are you coming at me this way? Why are you coming at me in this big way? Do you not know that I've been around you? I've been teaching these things. I've been present here, and you've never come at me before. Why? Because there was nothing that they could charge him with. There was nothing they could do in the daylight when he was teaching and preaching and, and he was performing miracles and he was doing the will of the Father because there was no blame within him. But they had to, to make something up. They had to come in the middle of the night because they didn't want to ensue a riot in, during Passover week. Remember that the beginning, they didn't want to arrest him in the temple because they didn't want the people to come against them because they knew that they were going to come and protect Jesus because Jesus was the Son of God and he was coming in a powerful way and he was coming without blame. He was a perfect sacrifice. He said, I was here. I was in the daytime. He said, you know me. But there was no reason for him to have to come this way. 
that he was willing to submit. He was without blame. He was fulfilling the thought, <coughs> the Father's purpose. Even in that last line, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. What has Jesus done? Jesus has done everything the Father has, has asked of him. Here he, we see him as the Christ, the anointed one, the sent one, Jesus, the Savior, the one that all the Old Testament would, would prophesy about. Jesus has fulfilled that. He says, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Let the time happen. This is God's appointed moment. Think about this for a minute. <clears throat> Could you imagine writing something right now, talking about someone in the future? I'm just going to think about what I can and, and make up this storyline for someone in the future. And in a thousand years from now, someone living and existing and fulfilling exactly what I wrote right now. And, and people even caring about what I wrote. But this has happened in Scripture over and over and over again. They were writing these things hundreds, thousands of years before Jesus was here on this earth. And he was fulfilling all of these prophecies perfectly. Yeah, they were much better than me just making up a story because they were given by the Holy Spirit of God to write these and put them in Scripture. And they were written down. But, but man, it just gives you some validity to understanding that there's no other writing like the sacred word of God that is given to us, that, that this happens, that Jesus' fulfilling prophecy just proves so much of how real and true he was as the, as the Christ, as the Jesus, as the Savior, as the one, the Son of Man sent by God to fulfill the purposes of the Father. Him fulfilling the prophecies show that he is like no other. It shows the truthfulness of the word of God, the uniqueness of this, the way that this has happened from Genesis 3.15, the very moment that, that what's about to happen was first spoken about in the scriptures to all the prophecies that would remind us that these things were going to happen. <coughs> Isaiah 53, that was written 700 years before Jesus would walk on the face of the earth. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and he was not esteemed not. Surely he's borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed and we stricken him, smitten by God, afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. But on him the chastisement that brought us peace, if with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we've turned away, everyone to his own way, and the Lord lays upon himself the iniquity of us all. That's what we're seeing here unfold. That he is the perfect fulfillment of all the Old Testament scripture. He is the Christ, the anointed one. We should be blown away by this. We should be blown away that, that he could fulfill each and every prophecy in such a perfect way. That he is, he is like no other. The Son of Man is truly sent by God to fulfill the purpose of God, to accomplish what you have gathered here this morning to celebrate the salvation that he brings, that he is a part of our lives, that he, we are brought into his family. We get to be a part of his church as his people because we have believed and trusted in Christ who has forgiven us of our sins, who has given us a way to enjoy this new life in him. He is the Christ, and we see him that in this way. And the last person we see in this is, is kind of a strange one, but uh, Mark is the only person who writes about the naked guy who runs away. Um, but 
there's got to be a reason for that. And, and I'll submit a couple of, of thoughts here. Um, a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth in his body, and he seized him. But he left the linen cloth, and he ran away. So he was, he was out at night. And probably in what he was wearing to bed and had something wrapped around him. And when they tried to take hold of him, he ran away. There's not many situations I think any of us in this room are going to run away naked from, right? I I just don't think so. And none of the other gospels mention this. But it's here. So let's let's talk about for a second. What could be the purpose of this? Some people think that this is actually Mark, John Mark, the writer of Mark. But there's a lot of speculation. They just think the way it's written, it feels like he's telling a story on himself. One, I don't think I would write that about myself. (laughs) Um, But maybe he did. And that's just a lot of speculation. Like, we cannot hold to that. We don't know that that, and we can't make up some reason because of that. But I really, praying about this, thinking about this, listening to people way smarter than me talk about this, and they kind of give us two reasons. One is... Um, is in the Old Testament, Amos, it talks about those who would flee naked, that they would, that they would flee from what was happening, that they would be bare and, and not covered in, in, in them. And it's talking about representing that, and they said this is kind of a nod back to that. Um, and maybe that's true or not, but what I think it, it does show us is this, is the turmoil of the situation, is, is that Jesus was left alone in this moment, that everyone fled, even this man, because, I mean, you've got to think of this, how scary of a moment this would be when there's whatever amount of guys with clubs and swords coming after this person, and you're getting captured, and you're going to run and flee from this moment. This is a high, intense moment, right? I think that's what this shows. It shows that this is a pretty scary moment. And how is Jesus in all of this? He's calm. He's, 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 he's very much calm. He's very much collected in everything he does. When Peter goes to swing a sword, and most people think, like, Peter wasn't aiming to cut the guy's ear off. He just missed. I mean, like, you don't do that. Like, he's aiming to hurt the guy. And, and he missed that. Jesus picks up his ear and puts it back on. And he rebukes Peter. And he tells him that this is the time. And he, he tells him, why are you coming at me like robbers? Because I'm not here to run. I'm not going to, I'm here to be submitted to the Father's will. This is God's timing and his purpose. And in, in the chaos of the moment, Jesus just shows that he is, he is God's anointed one that is fully living out his purpose, and he's doing it for you and for me. He's doing it for, for us. <laughs> when it caused someone else to run away naked because of the fear of what's going on, Jesus says, I'm here, and I'm going to do what's required of me. And he's about to go through some hard things, and he's doing it for us. So as we close today, I think we can ask ourselves some questions, maybe some questions we've asked all through Mark. Do we love Jesus more than the world? Judas didn't. He couldn't figure it out. He couldn't get his heart right. He couldn't surrender his love for all the other things to love God first. He was pursuing his kingdom and not the kingdom of the Father. It would lead him to, to give himself to wickedness. You know that later he would repent. I, mean, I think it's in, in Matthew 27. It talks about that he, he, he repents. He, he actually brings the money back to, 
to the court that had given it to him, to the people who had paid him. And they said, what are we going to do with this? You know, what's this to us? Well, it was a big thing to Judas at the moment because he said, well, you've, I've traded this for the blood of the innocent one. He recognized who Jesus was. He recognized that, that he knew, even Judas himself in his wickedness knew this, but it doesn't ever show that he completely gives himself. In fact, he ends up taking his life. He's up being a, a, a namesake that no one wants. We don't name our kids Judas. We don't name our dogs Judas. Well, there might be some cats named Judas. I don't know. But, but we don't name anything we love Judas. Because that we understand that it's darkness, that's wickedness. Do we love Jesus more than we love the things of this world? Do we fully understand and trust Maybe we find ourselves having grown up in church, being around this our whole lives, but not just fully grasping this. You know that this is a very personal and real thing. You can't be here because your parents were here. You can't be here because it's what you've always done. This needs to be something that you believe and you trust in. Jesus is going to the cross for you. I think there's a group that I didn't talk about in this very well, and that's the mob. And we can relate to the mob very well. They were there to take Jesus. You know what? Our sins are the one that caused them to be there. Our, our brokenness, our sinfulness are the one reason there was a mob in the first place. Because we had to be forgiven of our sins. And we have to recognize that in ourselves. And we might not have been a part of the mob, but we were part of the problem that caused Jesus to need to be crucified. And that we can uh, celebrate the things that Alistair Begg says so well that we need to to see Jesus as necessary, as voluntary, as propitiatory, as substitutionary, as, as he is the one who would come in our place to die for us because we needed him. Our sins have put him there. It's just my prayer that we would see Jesus in this light, that we would know him personally in this way. That, that if we don't, that we start asking, God, reveal yourself. Make, give me a new desire. Give me a fresh perspective. Let me see you and know you as the Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the people who are here, God. And I thank you for um, the way that you work in our hearts. Uh, Lord, even, even in... What's going to come later with the disciples, God, it just shows the transformation that can happen or that, that you can bring good out of what's meant for evil. And God, there's so much good and there's so much grace and love to be experienced because of the cross. Such an ugly scene, such a fearful moment, but God, you are standing there calm. You are there for us and you are, um, Jesus Christ is, is to, to be the, propitiation of our sins, Lord, to be the one to stand in our place. And God, I just pray that we would seek you today. Lord, I pray that those who, who may not know you, um, truly, Father, that they would surrender their lives to you, God, and that you would just bring a, a real fresh relationship into their lives, Lord, that a real fresh sense of, of what uh, following Christ is all about. Lord, I pray that we would uh, just grow in our relationship with you, God, that we'd be excited to tell the world, God, that, that you have done these things for us. Lord, where we are undeserving, we are fearful, 
and fleeting, Lord, that you are there for us and you don't waver. But I just pray that your word would speak today and we'd respond and we pray this in Jesus' name.